You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thank you for downloading another special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is another one from Theology Beer Camp, and this one is a crossover show with Pathological. Uh, We were actually at a coffee shop a couple blocks away from the event talking with Eric Hall, a Roman Catholic theologian, and also with Jeffrey Carter, although we couldn't get Jeffrey to talk very much. Uh, Some of you might recognize Jeffrey as one of our frequent listener contributors on Facebook. And we had a good little time here, so uh, we decided to set up some recording equipment and talk a little bit. The conversation eventually drifted over towards what it looks like to do theological ethics, kind of inhabiting the space that we inhabit. Uh, Todd Littleton and Eric Hall and I are all simpatico with the project of homebrew Christianity, to be sure, but we all kind of find ourselves on, if you will, a sort of traditionalist conservative wing of that conversation. So as you'll hear in here, you know, we uh, certainly talk about ways that Christians can resist the call of state domination, but also ways that we can critique somewhat the culture of the street protest and things like that. At any rate, it's a little bit noisy, so I do apologize for that, but we did record it while we were eating our breakfast, so hopefully you'll enjoy this, and uh, without further ado, this is the Pathological Christian Humanist Podcast crossover conversation at Catalina Coffee Shop. So listeners, this is a special crossover podcast, the Pathological Podcast, starring Todd Littleton and the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're here at the Theology Beer Camp, actually just a couple blocks away from it in Redondo Beach, California, and we're joined today by Jeffrey Carter. Listeners, you might recognize him from the world of Facebook. He's one of our super listeners, also one of the moderators of Gospel Theology and Resurrection Life. Is that the right name of the group? Yes. Excellent. Also joining us today is uh, Eric Hall. He's a philosophy professor in Helena, Montana, and we are eating breakfast here, and because we are egomaniacs... We figured you wanted to listen to everything that we say while we eat our breakfast burritos here in Los Angeles. Well, maybe you can start by saying what kind of burrito you got. I think that's oh. very important. <laughs> so, so folks, uh, Eric wants me to do audible Instagram here. <laughs> and I'm actually not. I'm going, I'm going, I, I prefer not to. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, Eric, I mean, your connection to this conference, you gave a a good talk yesterday on tradition to a bunch of people who aren't all that keen on tradition, usually. So, I mean, uh, since they weren't there to hear that talk, and uh, they may or may not listen into the Christian... No, the Homebrew... Yeah, Homebrew Christianity podcast. There's too many podcasts around here. Give our listeners just a minute or two on uh, what your talk was on. Oh, sure. I'd love to. So, I talked about tradition and the way that we need... uh, for lack of a better term, and I'm not a huge fan of this term, uh, that we need to authentically take up tradition. And the whole, the whole idea behind it is that um, we, we live in a tradition right now in the U.S. where we pretend like we have no tradition. And we, in some ways, tell ourselves that we despise tradition. But, like I said, that's a tradition unto itself. It comes to us via the Enlightenment thinkers who saw tradition as nothing other than bias. But the, the point of my talk was to say, look, bias comes through tradition, it's true. We get Jim Crow, we get all mm-hmm. sorts of crappy things, crappy values handed down to us, but uh, that's not all tradition is. Rather, it's a set of bifocals that uh, 
that allow us to see into the truth of the world around us and even into the truth of God. And, uh, and, and it gives, it, well, it gives us access. So we are tradition. We need to take up tradition as, in, seriously and, uh, and allow it to speak through us, not in the bad ways, wipe off the smudges from your bivocals, but mm-hmm. take up the tradition nonetheless. All right, and listeners, food just arrived, so I, I've never done a breakfast podcast before, so this is <laughs> this is new stuff for us. Well, Jeffrey, so yes, I am. Yes, I am. We done with twenty three as well. I think that's coming. Well, Jeffrey, won't you lean in? I mean, so these guys can take a bite or two of their breakfast. Uh, you know, you you've been a regular contributor online. You comment on our shows. Um, I mean, what what path brings you to a uh, theology beer camp? Uh, what path? Well, basically, um, as a lay person, it's just been a, a very long-term interest in uh, the life of the mind, theology, and philosophy in all and discovering... Um, because I knew podcast a few mm-hmm. years ago, and by that discovering the uh, homebrew Christianity podcast um, has given me, uh, as a layperson, just a, a really uh, full and uh, interesting uh, look into all these different currents of theological, philosophical thinking in the Christian world. And so that, you know, when I've had an opportunity like this now to come together with a bunch of people that are kind of on the same same trajectory, mm-hmm. similar okay. number one, it's number an enjoyable one. opportunity to get together and uh, experience some of that. Very cool. Well, uh, Todd and I have been sharing a futon a couple nights, so I've gotten to know Todd real well. Yeah. Todd, I mean, yeah, you, you are, the, <laughs> yeah, you are the veteran of these live podcast events. So, I mean, uh, what's been going on here at Theology Beer Camp that's adding something interesting and good to the experience? We know. Um, <clears throat> Watching, uh, uh, we talked about it a little bit, you know, uh, live events really are a little bit of a different animal. Yes. You know, and and so while you can have uh, normally kind of a scripted conversation uh, in, in a live event, you're, you're playing off of uh, those you're in conversation with and mm-hmm. you're not sure where it might go, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about... Christian and Amy's podcast, which is always possibly going anywhere, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. um, but that's that in a live setting, you kind of feed off the energy of, of people who are there. You kind of sure. you kind of understand what's connecting. You kind of so it's kind of a cross between you know kind of a public speaking event plus you know you're looking for some sort of content that you can distribute, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it opens up some I think some pretty interesting dynamics that you don't normally get. Say if you're behind a mic in your office. Yes, which is where I've been. This is my very first live podcast event. So, uh, listeners, when you hear the other files, you'll hear all of the nerves, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> what, what brought you out here? I mean, why, why did you eventually decide to do this? Well, honestly, Trip contacted me out of the blue, um, probably on a Twitter private message because that's how he communicates with the world. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, said, uh, we're having this, you know, podcasters event in, you know, late January. Um, and, you know. And you promised warm weather. Yeah. <laughs> Holy and, Lord. And, you know, I told him, you know, okay, you know, I I really don't like to lay that lay down that kind of cash. And he said, well, you know, you'd be part of the talent, so, you know, you wouldn't have to buy a ticket. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. So I, you know, talked to Mary about it, and she said, yeah, you ought to go out there, you know, visit your brother, see these people that you listen to. And so, you know, I, I kind of went ahead and did it. And, you know, they, I really, I wish there were a better story than that, but that's about all there is to it. <laughs> As I narrated, I'm like, boy, this is the most mundane telling of this event that is is humanly possible. (laughs) Well, we had things to say before. I know, I know. I'm telling you, you get get something turned on and all of a sudden, what do you say now? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe one way to kind of get back into what we were talking about before we fired up the recorder is, is, uh, you know, we're looking at resources for um, how we do ethics, how we make decisions that actually mm-hmm. form us yeah. and form mm-hmm. those we're in relationship with. And so, you know, maybe it would be okay for, you know, not not maybe for the entire kind of presentation, but we were kind of at the point of mm-hmm. wrestling with the fact that the tradition, in particular Catholic tradition that Eric was describing, affords a particular uh, thread that mm-hmm. we can think through when it comes to making decisions. So we're talking, of course, about you know war and uh, use of drones and and impact and how you go back and you make those decisions. And I think you were talking about, um, or both of you were actually talking about um, how our decisions aren't really uh, intended to be based on uh, what's best for me, but what's best mm-hmm. for the other or others so maybe you point us to a a place where you know we can kind of get back into that conversation a little bit yeah well one of the one of the tensions i see um in christian life and again that's this is what i want to write about next is uh we're, we're to take up the love of God, right? And we're supposed to become persons of the cross and give ourselves self-sacrificially. And that, that doesn't just mean getting ourselves killed, for instance, but uh, it can also mean giving to the poor, right? I mean, this is how John, uh, uh, the writer of First John, expresses it. You know, give yourself to your brothers and sisters. Um, and that's all true. And then, you know, with as a Catholic, I got I got to struggle with natural law though too. Um, and at least part of what natural law is affirming, I think, is not something like modern ethics. But I, I go back to virtue ethics. And if we take our nature seriously and we take our immediate cares seriously. I care for my wife more than I care for your wife, right? Mm-hmm. And I care for my daughter more than I care for y'all's daughter. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean I, I don't have potential care for anyone, but now the question is to whom do I owe more and why, right? And I actually think I owe my family more, even if I still owe others something. Now where this becomes a tension is in the question of Christian ethics, and that's why I think there's an impossibility to Christian ethics. I live in a dual world whereby I am at one point eschatologically called to care for everyone in a sort of totally self-sacrificial and canonic way, but 
in the world in which I live, I am called to my family first, and I take that extremely seriously. That's why, I mean, so what I was saying is I think this is the importance of, of the tradition of orders in the Catholic Church anyways, because I think orders um, allow, if you will, someone to continue to emulate Christ in the fullness of what it means to emulate Christ and to give of oneself self-sacrificially in a way that I'm not able. I'm able to give children. I think that's important. I'm able to care for those children. I think that's important. But I can't give myself in a full self-sacrificial sense, except perhaps to my children. Mm -hmm. And wife. Yes, yes. Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I guess the question that always comes to my mind is the very existential character of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I mean, he is talking, you know, you are the city on the hill, not... Some of you, in behalf of others, are the city on the, on the hill, you know. Um, and again, you know, I think holy orders is one solution to that problem. Another solution to that problem is the, the Martin Luther reading where the Sermon on the Mount is there to make you realize just how hard it is to be good so you feel like crap and fall on the mercy of Jesus. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I don't like either of them completely, but I also don't know that I can come up with a better third way. No, I understand. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I, 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 <laughs> Um, and, yeah, one way or another, there's got to be a tension of some sort, right, between mm-hmm. the, the what is here and what is not yet, as mm-hmm. we might talk about in Pauline theology. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to find some way to mediate the not yet with the here and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a good question. Are there more options than that? Right, right. Well, and that would take us to what, as I was listening to you all earlier, trying to determine, so what other threads in the tradition are available? Uh-huh. And you mentioned Amish, maybe, or Quakers. Mm-hmm. I think most people actually see those groups as, like, orders. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So what are the other um, available uh, streams that might be out there that might be more popularly understood and not categorized as something just as a Protestant order over sure. against uh-huh. another option. That, that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Well, I think of the Huguenots, actually, that I was talking about yesterday. Uh-huh. Um, in the, I think it's the northwest part of France where uh, André Trocmé... Uh, you know, he, as uh, Philip Halley says, he became the, uh, his little village became the most well-oiled sort of rescue machine in all of Europe. Um, and they operated, as Halley describes him, by, by what I'd call virtue of hospitality. And what that virtue of hospitality means, it, it, it's actually very, <laughs> it, it reminds me of Abraham in the desert and the three angels of God, or how we want to express them, come to visit him. Or the icon of the Trinity, depending exactly. on what church yeah, you go exactly. to. Yeah. <laughs> All affirm both. Uh, uh, the, uh, they come to visit him, and he immediately opens his doors to them, well, his tent holds mm-hmm. to them, uh, and uh, welcomes them in, right? But it's not as if he knew, didn't know that they were family, that he didn't know that they were, he, he knew they were strangers, right? Right, right. And I think that's an important recognition. I can still... At least this is one way I want to mediate it is through Le Chambon. They recognized who was in their village and who was not. Mm-hmm. It's just that they operated by way of a virtue of hospitality. They right. was able to see that and yet still overcome it for the sake of good somehow. 
But that's scary still, because that's still mm-hmm. a self-sacrificial call, which it's always going to be scary in the Christian faith. But. Oh, sure, sure. And another direction that makes me think, and I, I'm, I'm spitballing here because I, I didn't think of this till you're re-narrating that just now, is the grand question, you know, within Christian ethics, let's sure. assume it's possible for a moment, yeah, yeah. Of, <laughs> of what parts of... I guess the composition context of the biblical texts are inherently worth preserving and which parts are simply background sure. so that we translate it into a new part. Because here's the, the counterexample I'm thinking. Yeah. Hospitality, I mean, you can find that in Homer, you can find it in Ovid, you can find sure. it in all sorts of texts. It seems to be a very widespread assumption in the ancient world. And it's a virtue, to be sure, not everyone practices it, but... Then on the other hand, you get something like the household codes of St. Paul's letters. You get the submission to the emperor. You get those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that that's always the trick I, I use on my students when they say, you know, okay, it might be that these were the marital arrangements in the first century, but the Bible says it. And I said, well, are you going to leave America and find a place that has an emperor? <laughs> and, and not one has yet. So, But, I mean, you know, going beyond that goofy joke, I mean... You know, I think hospitality is one of those things that we can pull from the ancient world to inform the way that we live over against the sort of privatized, capitalistic way that we live. But it's a little bit tougher for me to say why that one and not the household codes, why not the gender hierarchy, why not... And my instincts tell me, but as far as offering an argument, I'm not as sure... Well, I, I got this neat trick. Uh, I'm not bound to Sola Scriptura, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> this makes it a little easier for me because uh-huh. I think I can make reasonable arguments for this mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, an ethic of care, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, by way of nature and at a first-order level of my desire, I immediately care for my family first. There's nothing to do about that in some ways, and I wouldn't want to do anything about that. Okay. And yet, on the other hand, I can at a second-order level say uh, to myself, look, other persons mm-hmm. have families, they have children, and they mm-hmm. deserve my care, at least in some way too, what can I do to both care for my family and open myself to them? Mm-hmm. Well, I can be hospitable, right? And I, I think I think if one argues within this sort of natural law framework uh-huh. and can buy into that, then I think it becomes a, a way in which to sort of reaffirm these biblical texts. But like I said, I'm Catholic. We do that crap all the time with the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking that, that if we were translating that into a, uh, and you've done it well with the illustration of, so um, I, I love my wife more than your wife, yeah. uh, more my child more than your child, so obviously there's a little bit of a, um, you know, we're thinking through this conceptually and then trying to find a pertinent illustration. So if hospitality or care become kind of the thread that opens up this possibility to something better for community for life, what are some other areas that 
it, do, it does problematize it even more than the fact that we have uh, common connections and family. Sure. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we live in our world, and, and um, I mean, James Younger illustrated last night when they went and interviewed for the story of God, the uh, a, a radical Muslim converted back to, you know, uh, an unradicalized Muslim, mm-hmm. how the um, Muslim community actually gave some pushback. Why did you choose that guy? And he said, of course, it got both angles in one person rather than yeah. trying to find two, right. two mm-hmm. people. But but immediately for someone who's not in that context, and we start mm-hmm. thinking hospitality, yeah. when we start thinking care, it, yeah. sometimes, it problematizes the... the, the uh, that ethic of hospitality or care in a way different than you trying to figure out how should I show care or hospitality to Nathan's wife. Absolutely. I I think hospitality is shown differently to different persons, right? I mean, there still has to be an element of trust and hospitality or or maybe it's precisely in the mistrust that one opens up with the possibility of hospitality and closes it down quickly if you're married with children. Because if I invite someone into my home and they begin to disrupt it, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that that's not usual at first, but then I will quickly try to take care of business because I am still dedicated firstly to my family. And that's the tension I'm talking about, too. I mean, look, this is, I think, the ultimate tension that... um, comes out with, say, Syrian refugees that we're talking about right now, um, mm-hmm. and why some people show an utter scorn and hatred toward them, and why the why another side shows, I think, an unthoughtful acceptance. Well, um, Next door. And, and take that with a grain of salt. What I'm saying is you have to recognize that this is an entirely different people. We are humanity, right? But we express that in so uh, diverse uh, a number of ways that we are inviting strangers into our home. I think that's a good thing when we can remember that there will be tensions and struggles in that as well. Right, right. Yeah, that's a. Uh, it just reminded me of a story from last summer, not entirely, or maybe at all related to your point, but, uh, you know, when he was still governor of Indiana rather than vice president of the U.S., uh, Mike Pence made a public announcement that uh, no Syrian refugees could settle in the state of Indiana. And, you know, there there is absolutely no law in the state of Indiana that allows the governor to make that declaration. And so the uh, Archbishop of Indianapolis said, um, I'm, I'm hereby giving an order to every diocese in Indiana to take in refugees. And I, oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, basically, you know, kind of did that, uh, the subversive disobedience, right? You know, uh, if you think you can punish me for this, take your shot. You know, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm going to be St. Paul and invoke my Roman citizenship yeah. here. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, that's, I, I was I was afraid we were going to lose our our bishop to the arch to get off topic here. My bishop to the archdiocese of Indiana. I was a little bit afraid of that. Oh, really? Okay. He's at okay. that age, and uh, he dealt with the. Uh, 
he's a he's a, an extremely good man, like one of mm-hmm. my favorite people, and he's one of the few bishops, uh, off topic but still in ethics. Yeah, who dealt I think with the Catholic sex scandal in the right way. Okay, he, he sent our uh, he basically he said we're going to find a way to recompense you. It does not solve the issue, but we will find a way. Mm-hmm. And he put our diocese into bankruptcy in order to give people at least some sort of uh, monetary okay. apology, wow. um, which we're pulling out of now uh, due to his mm-hmm. wise leadership. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he basically said, yeah, we, we did wrong. We owe yeah. you something. We can never give back what we owe you, but here's at least what we can give you. So he, he dealt with that while I was afraid we were going to lose him. He's a blessing. Mm-hmm. So, all right, all right. Anyways. But you just pointed up the tensions yep. when you enter a different sphere. Mm-hmm. You know, so a Christian governor and the bishop. Uh-huh. That you, you know, you've got, you know, in, in the benefit of the doubt, the governor's working off of a sense of safety and security. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that could be argued that's my family. Yep. Yep. And I may appreciate your family, but I'm not going to risk my family. That's right. Mm-hmm. How do you, res- because that, that can work you know, analogically that yep. way. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I mean, I, that's what I appreciated about, you know, what the Archbishop did is that, you know, he didn't. Uh, file a brief with the Indiana Supreme Court. He didn't, you know, work within the channels at all. He, he elected instead. And I, and I say this as a person who's not entirely impressed with protest culture, but because he actually did this as a functionary of a real practicing community, he said, all right, you know, I'm now going to tell you that, you know, your allegiance to the state of Indiana is going to now become secondary to your allegiance to the archdiocese. That, that's the right. That's the right tension, I think. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, I hate to say it. Maybe Pence did the right thing, and the Archbishop did the right thing. I, I don't want to go too far with that. But you know, I mean, like acting in their functional roles. Maybe that's exactly what they were supposed to do. Now, the hard part for the Christian is to say. I'm I'm bound to the eschaton first, and how do I mediate that into in, into this life? And, and that's where I wanted to go with that, yeah. because uh-huh. because then on the individual level, yeah, when you start ciphering all of your emotions and all of your decisions, you you know it is easy to say I'll put off the demands of the kingdom. That's right. Yep. Because after all, we're in a secular society. Yep. And. These are the, the ways we protect ourselves. Yep. Yep. And so it gets that reversal instead of that first allegiance to, to Jesus, uh, yeah. if you will. It's, so. It becomes a whatever whatever keeps me safe and secure. And then now you kind of have to bring that stinking claim, take up your cross and follow me back into the whole situation. Yeah. And now it just kind of disrupts that whole thing. Mm-hmm. How far can you push? I mean, how, yeah. how far do you push it? Yeah. Because it's one, I mean, honestly, it's one thing for a bishop and uh, an unmarried man to uh, to make these claims and, and put people at risk, but it's another thing for me to put my children at risk. And mm-hmm. that, that, that's, again, the, the tension in some ways that I don't know how to mediate. I mean, maybe it's just a matter of what Aristotle 
Aristotle calls phrenesis. We have to use practical wisdom uh-huh. with a sort of letting our heart toward the kingdom of God lead us first, knowing that that will never yield an easy answer. I don't know. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And honestly, this is why, uh, and I don't know if Trip Fuller ever listened to this, but I'm sure he'll be bouncing off the walls hearing me say this, but I, this is why I appreciate the work of writers like Stan Hauerwas and John Milbank sure. and David Bentley Hart, because one of the things they do better than so many other writers is they are masters of what if, you know, what if we imagine the diocese as a genuine rival for our primary allegiance to the state? What if uh, we imagine, you know, the local church uh, as an intermediate community, so it's not just me as an individual relating to the state, but that, you know, there is a genuine alternate pull of gravity, a third place, if you will, and, you know, because our imaginations are so shaped by really the paradox of, of, of radical fragmentation on one hand, but then sort of a radical commonality in the nation state, you know, those writers, you know, say, okay, you know, what if we thought about the union hall or the diocese sure. or the university as po- political in a genuine sense? That, you know, I, I like where you're going with this because this does, it, it doesn't solve the dilemma, but it brings some ease to the tension because I can, and I want to start with the church first and what I would call communities first. So mm-hmm. I consider a union a collective, right? And, uh, sure, sure. A collective is a series of individuals with um, interrelated interests that come together for a specific purpose, but a community is the natural extension of, in some way of one's care for family toward mm-hmm. others beyond one's family. How clear is that line? I, I think... I think it's pretty clear up front, okay. and then uh, you say the collective can indeed become a community. As okay, well, okay, good, good, good. Because I, yeah. I think, as historically contingent yeah. beings, we become citizens of a university. Yeah, sure, that's right. Yeah. All right, all right. Keep rolling, keep rolling. I'm sorry, Commun- I just wanted to. I mean, community. Yeah, <laughs> but but we do have natural extensions of our care. First, I want to say, and that's usually geographically uh-huh. bound, frankly, and it's yeah. uh, to people that we break bread with on Sundays. Um, and where I wanted to go with that in this specific case is it is a lot easier for me to stand with those persons under good leadership and say yes to refugees, for Uh instance, than it would be to say yes alone as an individual. And part of that is my love for them, my love for the church, and my willingness to do that with them as well, right? Uh And honestly, I mean, what you're talking about there, I mean, I, I mentioned it briefly in passing, but I mean, this is why I am suspicious of the protest as a political exactly. instrument. Yeah. Um, not only because, you know, McIntyre's critique in After Virtue, and I put yeah. that in there for Danny Anderson. You're welcome, Amen. Danny. I love uh, McIntyre, yeah. <laughs> well, Danny Anderson says uh, when you listen to any Christian humanist show that I'm on, a uh, drinking game should be any mention of After Virtue. You take a shot, and you won't be able to walk away from your... Well, say After Virtue. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Do another one. <laughs> but... So, I mean, his critique is that, you know, protest by its definition relies on a sort of nonviolent, to be sure, but it's a nonviolent coercion. You know, I'm going to make you uncomfortable enough that you don't want to do what I think is right, but you're going to do it because it's less irritating just to concede than it is to resist. But the other part of it is that because protests tend to be organized as one-shot deals, 
And it's not that sense of formation that you see in, for instance, Dr. King's letter to the Birmingham jail, you know. Yep, that's right. Um, you don't have that strong soul formation in the modern protest movement. You know, I worry that uh, because our desires are not being transformed, and this is where anything makes me think of Dante, you know, because we're not having that purgatorial experience of learning to desire better, I fear the protest is... is I don't want to reduce it to simply another manifestation of consumerist choice, but it's certainly distorted by that consumerist choice. Well, I going, want this yeah. to happen, so I'll stamp my feet and hold my breath until yeah. it does. You were going where I wanted to go with it. I, th- I think the modern protest movement, uh, as it frankly came out of Berkeley and how it's been disseminated from there, I think it's pretty masturbatory, for lack of a better term, right? Okay. Because it's sort of about me. This has been a theme this weekend, by the way. (laughs) Not not in action, just in word. Yes, Uh, yes, yes. go ahead, go ahead. Um, (laughs) There's been a lot of sex talk at Theology Beer Camp, good listeners. (laughs) When I start getting uncomfortable, you know we're going down a bad pathway. Uh, But... uh, yeah, it seems more solipsistic. It seems self-serving, as as if it's done for the sake of showing what I care for and uh-huh. getting my liberal bona fides in some ways. Right, right. right. And that's for our all. southern that's listeners, that's bona fide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our non-Latinesque. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Well, you know, we probably ought to wind this one down so we can pick up the next uh, next conversation. But I, this has been fantastic you know, uh-huh. for me to listen to you two kind of work through some of those things, especially as, uh, you know, uh, those who teach, instruct, and then know that there's a, a immense practicality. So it's not just on the on the level of how you, how you think through the concepts, but, we, you know, you help us think through the ways in which on the ground we make these, these very important decisions decisions about our life together. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah.